global energy system is undergoing a huge transition, with the costs of renewable energy becoming more competitive versus traditional sources, along with increased public awareness and pressure. Renewable energy is becoming the mainstream energy source for many, no longer an alternative just for the progressive few. Listen each week as Brant Handley and Christian Crown, founding partners of Renew Executive Search, interview renewable energy and sustainability experts that are not only making a difference to the environment, but are also growing successful businesses. Listen and learn about what attracted these experts to renewables, why they've stayed in the sector, and how they are helping renewable companies create a better tomorrow. We know you'll enjoy these stories as much as Brandt and Christian enjoyed recording them. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We are looking forward to you joining us as we dive deeper on how renewables are going mainstream. Welcome to today's episode of Renewables Going Mainstream. Today's guest is Dan Gregg. He's the founder and CEO of Global Otech Resources. Dan is an entrepreneur based in the UK who spent the last decade establishing his climate-first mission. For the last three years, his company has been developing the first commercial Otech concept for the ocean energy market, the Otech Barge, that uses temperature gradient in the ocean to generate electricity. They recently completed a feasibility study for the Maldives and are able to guarantee the first generation system to produce reliable ocean power at a cost parity with diesel fuel generation. Welcome to the podcast, Dan. Thank you very much. Could you tell us a bit about yourself? Yes, so uh, as you say, uh, my name is Dan Gregg, and I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Global Otech Resources, which is really pioneering um, the commercialization of ocean thermal energy conversion. That's quite a mouthful there. So I'll be referring to that as Otech throughout uh, conversation. Wonderful. So, I actually started my career in marketing. I was a was a marketing manager at a, a large, quite famous luxury e-commerce brand uh, at the beginning of my career to about uh, 2015. And now for nearly five years, uh, I've been working on renewable projects. Then how come you transitioned from marketing into sort of renewable projects? What, what led that transition? Well, I, I guess it wasn't necessarily a transition, but I, I had what some people have told me is called the Attenborough effect. Are, are you familiar with this, Christian? No, please tell me more. Okay, the, the Attenborough effect is 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 basically the impact that David Attenborough, <clears throat> who's a, a documentary filmmaker in here in, in the UK, I think he's got quite a global reach. It's quite um, famous. Yeah. It, it, yes, yes. So one of their documentaries, um, uh, particularly about plastic. Um, had a, a monumental shift in in um, in the public's perception of the use of single-use plastics, um, and so there's kind of a description of anyone who's kind of been inspired or impacted by a David Attenborough film to have been touched by the the Attenborough effect. So uh, there was an episode of a, a series called Frozen Planet. I think it was called On Thin Ice. Uh, it was about climate change, global warming. Uh, the melting of the ice caps and their consequences. And uh, I saw that and it, it sparked my cliche epiphany moment um, that the, the business as usual, I think, for the world uh, couldn't continue. So uh, I I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to have a mission that I felt would wasn't just for a five or 10 year plan, but was something I could see um, spending my entire career focused on. 
Um, so I decided to to pursue something with a with a climate first mission. And uh, yeah. the, the reason I would say that I didn't necessarily uh, transition out of marketing um, was because I thought that my sales and marketing background would be actually quite useful. I thought I, I could find a niche that was maybe a little dominated by technologists and academia, which you, you can sometimes find in with some pre-commercial um, technologies. So, you know, I, I kind of took it upon myself to provide a, a, a market-focused lens for, for a sector. So uh, after a stint working on seawater desalination, uh, I, I discovered OTEC, Ocean Thermal Energy Conversion, and uh, I realized quite quickly that, that that was my calling. Fantastic. And you started the company yourself or with a group of, of, of founders? or? So I started it myself. Um, it, it was I kind of pivoted out of the desalination work that I started in 2015. Um, it was 2017. I had I I I just heard about OTEC as a method for water desalination, and as I was reading and studying into the literature around it, I couldn't believe that more people weren't talking about it. Um, so I, I became, um, you know, um, if I get passionate about something, I'm pretty all in. Um, and I was able to, you know, call up people that had been working in the sector since the 70s or or more recently at the uh, uh, the, the Mackay plant in Hawaii. And uh, I built quite a strong network. And uh, I guess I, I had an idea. So I'll give you a bit more background on OTEC. Yes, so please. since the 70s, the OTEC sector had really been focused on developing these large utility scale systems. Um, and the reason for that was because of the uh, the energy crisis in the US. So, um, you know, OTEC was seen as as a technology that could potentially be the savior um, and take away the US dependence on on imported oil. So they were trying to develop OTEC to compete with on grid fossil fuels. But the technical leap from the kind of demonstration to commercial plant for uh, for a project of that size was something like four orders of magnitude. So no commercial plants were ever really funded. And uh, and, and that's that may be why many of your, your listeners may have only been hearing about OTEC for the first time today. So I saw an opportunity for OTEC kind of staring me at the face from my previous experience in, um, in the seawater desalination project, because I'd been looking at developing markets and, and small islands. I knew that that those kind of um, markets and the off-grid communities in the tropics actually had some of the highest energy costs in the world. Um, yeah. They lack space for large solar installations, but to get an OTEC project to be commercial there, you don't actually need to compete with the grid for the US. You've, you've got a barrier that's three or, 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 or maybe four times higher. So mm. I, I, I saw an idea, I, I saw a con, I had a concept that, those islands could be converting um, the solar heat energy stored in their oceans by using a, a, a pumping platform and heat exchanges rather than photovoltaic panels. And uh, and that the OTEC plants only actually needed to be one order of magnitude larger than what was already demonstrated for the economics to work out. So I, I, I guess I built a business plan around that. I put a team together. Um, so I, I, I guess I'm, I'm the sole founder, but I have a founding team of people who who I kind of sold the idea to early and they either put in cash or 
or sweat equity, which was really crucial. <laughs> and, and that enabled us to, to, to be awarded some grant money um, and, some, and some angel investment. Tell us a little bit more about sort of how the technology works and, and sort of where you're deploying it. Sure. So, uh, I mean, I guess I'll give you a bit of a, a 101 on the technology. So, OTEC uses the, the warm surface seawater in the ocean. So, anywhere that you can get to around 27 degrees, which is around most of the to- tropics, um, you, can, you can use that water and the temperature difference between the cold, deep water below it, say that goes down to about four yeah. degrees when you hit a thousand meters. Uh, you, you can use that temperature differential to essentially power or fuel an array of heat exchangers. So you, you have warm water that will flow into a first heat exchanger. It evaporates a, a working fluid. And uh, you can think of it like a, a radiator that's, that's transferring heat from um, from itself to a to a room or a chamber. Um, so then the vapor that you've produced spins a turbine that produces the electricity. And then you return that vapor to a second heat and uh, heat exchanger, um, and and that's where you condense it with the cold deep water. So what, what's unique about this technology is that it can provide baseload power. It's renewable. It's it's, it's something that can run 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. So uh, you know we see that it solves a, a particularly pertinent challenge in in the renewables arena at the moment, which is obviously baseload power. Certainly, and I guess you. You need that warm water, so you need to be in the tropics for it to sort of work properly. That's right. Yes. So we we we've done some of our we've done some of our own studies and and spoken with a lot of academics that have been studying the 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 technical and and the global resource for what um, OTEC provide in terms of power. The most conservative estimate we can get that down to using the tropics is around one terawatt. So if you're replacing um, installed capacity, uh, megawatt for megawatt at the moment, taking into account um, off-grid, taking into account all the, the power plants, um, both on islands and on some mainland countries, and the population growth forecasted for, for those markets. You, know, we, you are looking at around one terawatt of, of potential by um, by the year 2050. So that's kind of a, a, a guiding north star um, in, in what we want to tackle. Fantastic. And sort of in terms of the size of islands, how, how big are the islands? Is it small sort of resort places or sort of bigger islands or a mix? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's everything. Uh, again, we're starting small with this technology because that's the way we've seen renewables yeah. and, and lots of other technologies kind of uh, ramp up. You, you, you start with the kind of small scale, lower risk applications. So our, our, the first generation technology is um, a barge that has a net output of 1.5 megawatts. It's got a gross capacity of 2.2 megawatts. Um, and that's something that can can power around, a, say, a, a thousand homes. So obviously resorts are typically very power hungry. They need to provide a premium experience to their guests. So um, it, it, that was really an ideal starting point for us um, until something happened to the tourism industry in the last three months that we that we won't distract the conversation from. Um, but but you know re- really it, it's not just resorts. There are there are small islands with with populations between um, five hundred and a thousand people um, all across the tropics that are using uh, predominantly diesel, and some places are using. Um, wood fire for their stoves and you know 
there's a lot of value that, that an OTEC barge um, could, could bring to those communities. Yeah, and certainly as space would be restricted, going solar would, would be a challenge many of those places, despite the sort of the, the abundance of sunshine. You're, you're, you're completely right. Solar's I mean, so not just a challenge in those really small islands, but if you look at the larger Caribbean islands or, or even some of the African ones, they're, they're covered in, in forests and, and a lot of the land's used for agriculture. So even if there is some land um, that that's kind of would technically be available for solar, um, you know, if it's if it's detracting from what their kind of core exports are, um, then that's going to be a problem. So you know, we designed this solution as a, as a market first solution instead of instead of just designing what would be the most technically viable thing. We've been speaking to, um, to the various ministries of energy and, and environment in in our markets and also um, resort owners and operators to to understand what what features an OTEC system would need to have. And resoundingly, land, land use was one of the most um, critical, uh, I guess, barriers that they had in, in, in adopting conventional renewables like solar. The, the space they need for baseload power is, is just too great. So for our, uh, the first generation 1.5 megawatt barge is, is something like 70 by uh, 20 meters. So... Uh, I, I'm not going to. Um, I'm not going <laughs> to reference the counts right here, but it, 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 it compared to the footprint of land that solar needs, the OTEC barge really just requires a, fa- a fraction of of um, space offshore. And, and you touched upon it sort of briefly. Sort of the technology is is it ready? Are you in demonstration sites or sort of where are you in the commercialization process? Yeah, yeah. So that really, the 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 the, not, the technology that was proprietary to us is is the barge and being a, the ability to be able to harness um, the the ocean thermal gradient um, for a for the cost that we can, which is at parity with diesel. So there are demonstration plants around the world. One in Hawaii, in Japan. Um, this one in India as well. All in kind of um, coastal. Coastal locations that these have all been onshore demonstration systems that have kind of showed that heat exchangers can, um, you know, have the right, have, have the most um, efficient um, materials to be able to um, generate net power. Um, there was actually a demonstration in Korea at the at one of the uh, annual OTEC symposiums last october where they went and floated a one megawatt um i think gross otec system uh, out on the coast of basan in south korea and uh, that, that's been designed by a, a research institution uh Crisio, and i believe that that barge is destined for a pacific island that that, that, that kind of fits the description that i just gave to you as uh, as a as an off-grid country that, that that needs another answer to renewables that isn't solar and wind. No, fantastic. So technology is there. It's it's getting close to to being deployed. When do you think we'll see sort of deployment? Is it in the next couple of years of, of sort of proper full size? Yes. Yeah. I, I think you know we're, we're looking at the year twenty twenty three and twenty twenty four for deployment. Obviously, yeah. you know we 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 want to be optimistic, but we you know, we have to be slightly conservative there's um, a lot of de-risking that has to go into this technology 
Um, you know, there, there's a lot of things we need to study. Um, and we obviously, one of, one of the biggest challenges for any of these technologies is, is, is financing them. So um, there, there is a significant number of hoops to jump through, whether you're getting commercial finance or concessionary finance to get one of these um, demonstration um, systems out there. So, uh, you know, we're, we're, we, we think that's a, a reasonable period of time to, to deploy the, the first 1.5 megawatt barge. Fantastic. In terms of the sort of demand side, how is this being received? When obviously you've been out talking to a lot of islands and and companies, yes, oh, it, it's been received hugely positively. Um, you know, we've we've been engaging with, like I say, resort owners and with governments across the tropics. Um, no one, no one is under the assumption there that that solar is going to enable them to hit their renewable energy targets. You know, the, the popular thing is there's going to be a certain percentage of renewables by 2030. That that's the that that's the um, a, lot, a lot of the legislation across the tropics, what what countries are aiming for. But I don't believe the technology is actually there on the market yet for them to be able to achieve that. Um, we, you, we are seeing breakthroughs with with battery and solar, um, but I don't know if they're at the uh, the magnitude that they need to be to to, to be able to um, you know supply um, a, a small you know 15 megawatts of power on a on a relatively small island so you know we we're finding a lot of the people we need to speak to very forthcoming um and especially given recent events at the start of this year um island resiliency and security of supply is a higher priority than ever so um yes the market is in, in, in is very very interested in in what we're doing Actually, sort of in, in terms of recent events, sort of how, how has that affected you? Have it changed your customer base, or who is the end customer, or how is it going ahead? Yes, yeah, so, yeah, it has quite dramatically. Um, probably, you know, there, there are pros and cons to this. Uh, I think I described to you last time we spoke. So we've been highly focused on resorts because resorts don't have the the kind of buying power or the, or the scale when when buying from an oil company that a government has. So there's typically the highest energy costs in the world are these small islands. So we were very focused on the Maldives. Um, there are 130 resort islands there. And yeah, you, you can you can find uh, the, the, the LCOE or levelized cost of energy to be as high as 40 cents per kilowatt hour in some of in some of these islands. The only the only way that they can reduce their their costs at the moment and and have some renewables has been um, installing some rooftop solar. Um, there's been some pilots as well for floating solar, but it, it's it's quite a contentious issue in the resorts market on whether they want these kind of installations in their lagoons or, or, or on their rooftops. So yeah. that, that was a very obvious place for us to start. Um, we spent about two and a half years kind of courting resorts there, and we're about to sign our first PPA um and in 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 the week that that was set, scheduled for unfortunately the resort shut down um in, in fact the, the entire tourism industry shut down uh which, which was a bit of a wake-up call for us uh it, it certainly stung for the first four to five weeks as we kind of gathered our thoughts on on whether we were going to 
bury our heads in the sand and just wait out that, that tourism will return and, and everything will be the way that it was before, um, or whether we made some fundamental changes to to um, the market we, we wanted to uh, serve and, and, and the way that we would ob- obtain our funding for these projects. So we decided to do the latter. I'm not a very good person at just, at just kind of sitting still. I'm not very patient, unfortunately. Um, so it, we, we've we've made a lot of changes the last uh, nine to ten weeks. They, they all feel very positive now. They fit with the signals that we're that we're getting from the market. Um, so you know, really now we're focused on working in partnership with governments that have island resiliency and energy security high on their list. Um, the benefit is that I think it'll be um, there'll be a lower barrier to accessing concessionary and commercial finance if you're working on a sovereign-backed project. Um, And there's obviously less risk associated with something like a pandemic causing causing a shutdown. I think for for most countries, whether you're an island or not, I think coming out of the pandemic, um, the priorities are going to be, uh, for for an emergency situation, uh, access to energy, water and medical supplies. So uh, I think exactly. by taking tourism, um, putting putting tourism to a side for now, uh, th- that is probably the most sensible approach for us to 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 get our first generation tech off the ground or in the water, should I say? <laughs> yeah, and I guess sort of just on so instead of floating solar, sort of you are outside the lagoon because you need to have those water depths. Is that correct? Understood. So you're a little bit further away from the resorts. Yeah, that's right. So we're typically five to 10 kilometers for these 1.5 megawatt systems from the offtaker. So um, it, it, it's not a significant enough project that the it's not a significant enough distance that the cost of the cable or the installation is uh, economically prohibitive. Um, but but it, the guests can't it, see it, really. The guests can't see much. it. And, and it, it's as much as a speck on the horizon as the other boats or vessels that you have um around these around these islands and you know a lot of the a lot of these islands really are um you know facing challenges to to maintain their natural beauty i think the more uh, the more the world advances in the way that it is um the less safe havens of kind of un, uh, or, or untouched places we're finding um and i think for that's probably the bit the, the hardest sell that you'll find with with floating solar or, or, or wind in these regions is is that you know it has a significant environmental um, you know, um, or visual impact on, on the environment thing we think we can solve by having one of these much smaller barges moored moored offshore fantastic uh, it's really exciting technology and, and and exciting to hear how that's sort of being adopted or people are open to adopt it. Are there any sort of other obstacles out there sort of you see that needs to be overcome for wider adaptation? Yes. So really, it's it's a question of scale. It's probably, you know, it's some of the similar questions that offshore wind, um, in particularly floating wind, was uh, was probably asking itself over, over the previous two decades, um, which is, you know, what is the optimum size of a system? So instead of turbines, you know, uh, I guess, our most technically challenging component is the cold water pipe. So a, a, a lot of the riser technology that we're using for our first system is already out there and, and kind of mission proven in oil and gas. Uh, but 
the scale that we want to get to to deploy 10 megawatt and ultimately 100 megawatt OTEC plants um, is going to require some um, quite big technical steps. So, so for us to prove that this isn't just a small island thing, but this is something that can supply um, any nation, even mainland nations, and and ultimately compete with coal and uh, natural gas and uh, a lot of the other um, fossil fuels out there. We, we need to get to those. Uh, we need to get one or two organ orders of magnitude above uh, where where our initial concept sits. So that's probably the the the, the most technical challenge, assuming that you you are asking more on the technical side. Yeah, no, it was it was sort of both on the technical and commercial side. Obviously, the two sort of quite often go go hand in hand with sort of cost reduction and costing out uh, exercises. Yeah, there's something that I think are quite hand in hand, and obviously the 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 larger our systems, the larger our market. But there's uh, there, there is a, a a technical challenge that that we're that we're addressing um, within that. Dan, as you know, at Renew Executive Search, we work with clients and candidates who seek to grow their businesses and careers um, in, in the renewable space and sustainability space. With your experience, what kind of qualifications do you think we that are needed to succeed in these industries? Oh, uh, yeah, good question. Um, I think there are, I, I, I wouldn't, I think I'd be remiss to pigeonhole specific qualifications because I think we're seeing a lot of the education landscape um, change to maybe what it was 20 years ago. You know, you're hearing some big firms say they no longer need people with with degrees to be considered for roles. So the, the thought I've put into this, I, I kind of concluded that there are three very valuable skill sets that are needed um, in in renewables and I think a lot of emerging technologies. Um, the first is is technical people, both both what both people who are kind of the introverts that want to, you know, just churn out the the engineering work, but also technical leaders. Um, there are people who are good with with planning an organisation, so um, you know, structuring of projects and uh, PPAs. So I say that's the second one. Um, and then I, th I think the, the third one is you need sales and marketing, not in, you know, I'm not talking about the, the, the cliche sleazy car salesperson, um, but um, the person that can understand markets and the person that can work with technologists to, to make sure that the solutions for the market that they're focused on are, are fit for purpose. So, yeah, sorry, for perhaps an indirect uh, answer to your question but um you know no, I'm, great I'm not not hugely passionate on on, on qualifications uh, um, i understand how important they are um more in i think in the technical and financial more world, about attitude yes. maybe um yeah I, I think i think attitude and and just to add to that i think what everyone needs is is a really positive attitude towards learning and the learning never stops I think if you if you adopt that attitude, um, that's a, a real key to to succeed in your career. No, wonderful, and we see that a lot. Sort of really, sort of that agility and learn ability to learn and to develop uh, is really what what set people aside who become successful in in this in this field. Uh, beyond just doing sort of good good for the environment and being attractive and passionate about that. 
You've worked uh, sort of in, in other sectors as well before. What would you say is the most different thing from uh, from the renewables side sector to some of the other industries? Oh, that is a very good question. Um, I think well, without that, I don't want this to come across grandiose, but I find that people working in renewables are typically more mission-driven than the other sectors that I've worked in. So I know in marketing, it does, you know, there are some people who kind of come out of university, they find themselves in marketing. It may not have been the 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 thing that they set out to do, but you know, it, it, it's a sector that needs a lot of smart people and and you know, especially in in fashion and retail, you know, there, there are some very uh, attractive brands that, that build people's self-esteem early on in, in their career. But in renewables, I'm typically finding that there are people that the entry level guys are or people, the entry level people are the ones who who from a pretty young age have have known that they want to work on something um, to do with renewables and and climate tech. And so some of the more senior people that perhaps weren't working in renewables before feel like they maybe they worked in oil and gas or a sector that's slightly dirtier. They want to cleanse their pods or soul from from the work they feel that they've done in oil. And uh, I think they, they feel that working in renewables gives them a bit of closure from working in what is broadly perceived as maybe like the kind of what, what tobacco was in the 90s as, as a bit more of a, um, I don't want to use the word evil, but, you know, the, the perception of working in oil and gas now compared to 30, 40 years ago is very different. I think you've you've still got you've got there's a lot of smart people in the middle of their or, or later in their careers that have decided, you know what, no more. Uh, you know, I don't want to be part of this. Here is uh, you know a, a way that I can apply my skills and experience and 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 further the development of renewables. Um, and, and yeah, I, I guess that's kind of what I see. People are very mission driven in this sector. Thank you. That's that's great to hear. So lastly, what words of advice or counsel could you give to someone who's looking to either grow their renewables career or perhaps getting into the industry for the first time? I think my initial answer would be about the, have it, having a, a, a very positive attitude towards learning and, and getting stuck into any environments you can. Um, I think it's important to consider where your skill gaps are. So one of my greatest learnings when I left my first job and did this desalination project is that I thought I could do everything. And it was a really valuable learning at a very at a very low cost. So I hadn't put in any of my own money. I had a very small grant. I was living with my parents and I was basically trying to do this seawater desalination startup where I thought I could kind of be in charge of everything. And boy, I was wrong. So wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, the, the the brilliant learning from that is 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 the importance of of a strong team. So I think my my advice to or my words of counsel to anyone uh, getting into renewables would be kind of don't think you can do everything. Work out what your you know what is your craft going to be, and find other people that have complementary skills. 
um, to your craft and and you know as as a team uh, you you can you can really achieve amazing things. Thank you very much, Dan, great founder and CEO of Global Otake Resources, for sharing your insights today. If you like today's podcast, please share it and give us a like on your pl- the platform you listen to. Thank you. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to Renewables Going Mainstream with Brand Hanley and Christian Crown, partners at Renew Executive Search. We hope you enjoyed hearing our renewable industry experts' stories as much as we enjoyed recording them. If you want to learn more about this fast-growing sector and learn how you can become more involved, please subscribe to this podcast and share with your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brand, Christian, Renewable Executive Search and the booming renewables industry, visit www.goforrenew.com. That's www.go4renew.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode of Renewables Going Mainstream.